This is Colonia Cast, episode 30. Today we are actually recording live at Rainbow Springs State Park, uh, where we're attending the, the uh, Rainbow Springs Turtle Survey. Uh, we're joined right now by Dr. Peter Malin, who is Professor Emeritus in the Collegium of Natural Sciences at Eckerd College. Uh, Dr. Malin has done this work at Rainbow Springs for over 30 years now and has done a lot of work with the Ecology of Florida Turtles. Uh, he also wrote the book on, on the biology and conservation of Florida turtles. Uh, but he's also uh, done a lot of other turtle work and phylogenetics and other sort of uh, discipline, so we're really excited to talk to him today about some of his adventures and, and research experience. All right, so Dr. Malin, what uh, first got you interested in turtles, and what made you decide to pursue uh, colonial research, specifically in the areas of uh, morphology and phylogenetics? So <clears throat> I grew up in New Jersey um, near the Passaic River, mm -hmm. and when we were kids, we spent a lot of time in the woods and uh, would find box turtles, spotted turtles, snapping turtles, painted turtles, wood turtles. I had a turtle pen in the backyard when I was uh, probably in first and second grade. Uh, in the third grade, my mom signed me up for a herpetology course at the, it was then called the Morris Junior Museum in Morristown, New Jersey. And I was completely blown away by the fact that one could be a herpetologist. And so um, from, uh, you know, it was just downhill from there. Um, so uh, I worked for, the, <clears throat> for the, the museum, which became the um, Morris Museum of Arts and Sciences. I worked in their live animal room, um, like all through high school. Uh, and then uh, when it came time to apply to, uh, for undergrad, uh, there were going to be four of us in my family um, that would be in school at the same time, so I had to go to a state school. And I looked at University of Kansas, University of Arizona, and University of Florida because of HERP programs. Uh, University of Florida was the last to accept me, and I had this weird logic, like they just made space for me at the last minute. So I came to Florida. Uh, and then <clears throat> right away I started volunteering in the, um, in the Museum of Natural History, so the, what was then called the Florida State Museum and they now call it the Florida Museum of Natural History. Um, and then as a sophomore I became the collections manager. Um, and the curator uh, was a guy named Walt Offenberg. Most people know of him from Komodo Dragon Studies, um, but he's done a lot of turtle work. And um, <clears throat> I actually started working with fossil lizards and snakes. So my master's thesis is on Pleistocene lizards and snakes. So that was, you know, down the morphology line. Um, and then Offenberg got an NSF grant to study land tortoises in East Africa. And he sent me to Africa to study land tortoises. and. Um, we did some of that together. We published a couple of papers, but I found that the soft-shelled turtles were just a whole lot more interesting than um, they're fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and their morphology is a um, lot more variable. So tortoise evolution is about changes in the skull size and shape and changes in the shell size and shape, but there aren't as many characters that work really well for cladistics. Um, 
with uh, with testudinids um, compared to soft shells. So <clears throat> when I was supposed to be collecting um, fossil tortoises in Africa, I ended up collecting a lot of soft shell fossils. And then that required going back and looking at the living material and the literature. And I found that um, there's just really, really nice variation in, in the shell and the skull of, um, of soft shells that worked really well with, with cladistics. And one, I forget what year it was, but there was a ASIH meeting in Gainesville and one of Max Heck's students, a guy named Malone, I forget his first name, but he, he was doing cladistics with crocodilians. And I listened to his talk and I said, this is it, right? I was going to try to do um, fossil snakes, which I, which Offenberg had had done and was encouraging me to, you know, to continue with. But I'm so glad that 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 opportunity, that possibility of, of working with softshell turtles, just popped up, and and clearly it it um, it really helped me get to. Uh, it was that work that, that got me a postdoc at the American Museum of Natural History with Gaffney, right, which is then when, you know, I sort of went overboard into the, the morphology That's, that, section. The soft shells is a really interesting group, and that, I mean, what kind of got you for soft shells in particular? That was sort of a extension of work that, that Gaffney had been doing at the AMNH for all the different, I guess, clay families of turtles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but he hadn't them. done soft shells. Yeah. I mean, he had, by the time I got there, he had described a couple of soft shells, you know, really good material that was at the American Museum that just needed to be, to be named, but hadn't, he hadn't done any real phylogenetics with, with a large suite of, of soft shells. And I think that um, it was, uh, I think, Siebenrock's paper papers on the shell. So I had to learn German. I took graduate reading German so it that I could do this. <laughs> so I could get started with that. Wow, and then uh, Siebenrock and there's a guy named Hude, H E U D E, who had described variation. You know, the this is this is a story in, in anatomy. You know, you think you discover something in anatomy, and it turns out some German already described it a hundred years ago. Right. So, um, yeah, and then, um, and then in terms of the the variation in the skull, Gaffney had just written this um, comparative cranial morphology of fossil and recent turtles. So it's in the same vein as like some of Sam McDowell's papers. So McDowell is a, a famous morphologist who worked on syst deep systematics, you know, doing dissections of musculature of, of heads of snakes. <laughs> it's just like really serious stuff. But I was able to, to use Gaffney's work, that comparative cranial morphology, to basically figure out where the variation might be in, uh, in the skull. So, um, if you look at that, uh, the paper that the, that's the bulletin of the American Museum of Phylogeny and Softshell Turtles, there's a section on the skull, non-shell postcrania, and then the shell. And all three data sets are really informative. So, softshell turtles have this incredible hyoid apparatus, oh, yeah. right? So, so chytra and pelicales, especially, 
You know, they're these suck gate feeders. But even these guys here, so the, the ferox that we catch here in, in Rainbow Run, uh, they have a giant hyoid, um, like a snapping turtle, and their, their patterns, different patterns of ossification of the bones in the hyoid, that's phylogenetically informative. Um, the vertebrae, uh, maybe a little less. The lower jaw I did separately from the skull. But between those data sets, I mean, stuff came out. And then later on, a, <coughs> um, a guy that was a student at Eckert, Tag Engstrom, went and worked with Schaefer out at, at Berkeley. And they did uh, a molecular phylogeny and came up with basically the same groups that I came up with. So it was really nice to see that the morphology held up. And, so, I mean, the total characters you were working with was well over 100, right? Right. So this is all yeah. very... Right. Yeah, that, that's that's a fascinating thing. This, some of the characters that you look at, too, are sort of even intracranial almost. Oh, yeah. So the, the yeah. pterygoid and how that's... What are sort of the functional significance of, of differences there? Is that to do with musculature? Or, like, why would that be something that was yeah. phylogenetically informative? For You know, one, one of the things that, um, that I think was sort of a, a, a constant consideration in the early days of doing phylogenetic systematics was not to try to figure out why, Right, because you can make up stories about why, but the fact is the morphology, it is what I see, right? I see the morphology. And this is, I used to debate with Pritchard about this, you know, about, he'd get all into about, you know, the function of a long neck. And it's like, it doesn't matter what, it, you know, why it's there. I mean, if all chelids have the same arrangement of the cervical articulations of the neck, why, why that happened or how it happened you will never know. You may never know. But here's some morphology. We can get, we can get out all these. We can get all, out the, the the vertebral columns, the cervical vertebrae for all these chelids and look at them. And there it is. There's the pattern, right? There's no debate about that. Um, so I think sometimes, <clears throat> I mean, certainly in, in those days, and I don't know if it's still the case. Well, people do people worry about the how the different changes in gene sequences affect organisms before they, you know, use a, a sequence to say, oh, well, these guys are more right, closely yeah. related. It's yeah. like, I'm not quite, in some cases, it'll be really cool to know what those genes do. Right? Yeah. And, and there, I think you probably can make a strong argument for what, what the selective value might, might have been at the time, you know, changes took place. But that's sort of a whole different sort of analysis that we're not even sort of the cutting edge there is trying to figure out what mm -hmm. these genes actually do. And that's a good point. I mean, genetics itself is kind of just marketed as a more robust version of, of morphological cladistics, essentially, is you're just looking at how different letter sequences are. are right, right. Different no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, um, that the morphological... Uh, folks working with, with phylogenetic systematics and morphology set the stage for genetic data sets to be used in, in phylogeny reconstruction. And um, there's still a lot of good stuff being done. I mean, I'm not doing, doing that stuff anymore because uh, Annie and I have gotten so busy with sea turtles, right, that, that 
I had to quit doing something. Right. And so um, I have like one or two papers still in the mill de dealing with morphology, um, but it's not going anywhere. And uh, the sea turtle stuff is really pressing because there are conservation issues that need to be dealt with um, right away. Um, maybe maybe we could talk a little about the sea turtle work. That's sort of a unique aspect. A lot of freshwater turtle ecologists don't really dapple in the sea turtles as much. So, and you you've sort of done that, but uh, you've done a lot of work in Bermuda. I know maybe you could both Bermuda and Panama. Okay. So so um, when <clears throat> when we were graduate students, uh, Annie did her PhD thesis. Uh, in Bocas del Toro, Panama, on um, foraging biology of hawksbill turtles. Um, and together, we did a bunch of what were called West Atlantic surveys, where we, uh, we went to different parts of, of, um, <clears throat> of the Caribbean to see what was going on with sea turtles, just by, by talking to fishermen. Um, and uh, so Archie Carr got us involved in that and then also got us involved in work in Bermuda. And it really does come down to morphology because um, in the late 70s, we learned to do laparoscopy. So it's a, a minor surgical procedure where you can look at gonads. And we did it uh, in Panama uh, starting let's see, 1989 would have been the first year, and then starting in Bermuda, 1990. Um, and at that time, there was this question about developmental habitat. Are there places where young sea turtles go to grow up where there are no adults? Um, and it turned out we could test that in Panama, and we could test it in Bermuda um, using laparoscopy. So uh, we did um, yeah, it was kind of like where you guys are now, or maybe a little bit later, where you have lots of time, no kids, no tenure track jobs, and we could come up with just enough money that um, we could travel every year to Bermuda and Panama, and then in between, I was you know traveling with Gaffney to go to go collect you know data. You know, he, he always said, you know, the best fossils are in museums. There's no, right, yeah. no point yeah. in going out and trying to dig them up. There are tons of really great fossils in museums. So um, we spent a lot of time um, going to European museums, went to museums in Brazil, um, and all over the U.S. looking at fossils. And um, I think it was probably... Uh, when Annie and I had uh, started to have kids and the choice was, uh, do we want to go and spend our summer in the bowels of some dark museum yeah. or do we want to go to Bermuda and Panama, right? Yeah. So it was like the sea turtle slowly but surely <laughs> got the upper Took hand. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I kept, Gene and I had done so much work together uh, for so many years that, that it was possible for me um, to to keep you know, publishing with him on, on uh, uh, especially side neck turtles, you know, in, in the later part of that. Um, and, you know, whenever, uh, I don't do this anymore, you know, I don't interview candidates to come teach at Eckerd College, but, but I would always advise candidates 
to keep, you know, keep keep in good stead with with your postdoc advisor and keep publishing with your postdoc advisor because it's hard teaching at a place like Eckerd, right? You have a lot of teaching, a lot of mentoring, you know, committee duties, and it's hard to like come up with complete new projects on your own. But if you can keep working with with your postdoc advisor, um, well, we're doing. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It's fun. A big, a big snapper a has big just snapper. come in. You want me to come? Can we pause? Yeah, let's we'll go pause get it. the snapping we'll turtle and come back. All right, we'll be back in a second. Yes, we've just had a little interruption. Yeah. Um, so, uh, when we catch big turtles here on on the Rainbow River, uh, sometimes it's best to get them out of the boat so that they don't have to worry about um, piling smaller turtles in with bigger turtles that could possibly uh, damage the, the capture. So we have a, a snapping turtle and a big soft shell that have just um, come into the uh, uh, the pavilion where we work up turtles. It's exciting to yeah. watch too. One of the students <laughs> sprinted down here. He's like, we got yeah. uh, but uh, yeah, that no, was... we should have looked to see what else they had in a boat. I didn't even think to ask, you know, how they're doing. Yeah. But by now, they, they'll probably have about 50 turtles in that boat. Yeah. Already. Yeah. I, maybe we could even, uh, I mean, you're talking about a little bit about how I, I was curious kind of how you do both kind of ecology and then the systematics and the phylogenetic side. It's not something you commonly see. I mean, a lot of it seems you know, like. I, I agree 100 percent that yeah. that that. People end up getting in channels and then and then have trouble, you know, diversifying. And I think I was really lucky to be in the in a vein where I ended up, you know, doing different areas. And it's just fortuitous, you know. I I, you know, I think <clears throat> there was uh, one of the questions that y'all were interested in is like how how did I decide to do a long term study at Rainbow Run and I didn't decide. <laughs> I mean, it just, we started doing it and, and then, you know, after a while it, it kind of slacked off and students came back and said, Hey, how come we're not doing more of this? Let's go back and, and do it some more. Um, and then, you know, this is the 114th sample today, uh, starting from, from 1990. And it's just a really great data set. Um, we haven't done enough with it yet. But I'm hoping with, you know, having uh, having Jeff Gessling and Peter Scott at Eckerd College, along with, you know, students do senior oh, theses and we got it. <laughs> I get a break for it. I just saw him. Snapping turtles. Snapscaping. We'll keep it. Put him back in the tub and then just set the other tub on top. But we'll still have to keep an eye on him. This is yeah. great, though. All right, we'll run back. We don't need to stop. <laughs> okay, let's get back at it. All right. Well, All right. a live sample. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, um, with um, with additional faculty now at Eckerd College that, that um, are, uh, you know, physiological ecologists in the case of Gessling and, and you know, population geneticist and ecologist in, in the case of Peter Scott. I mean, it, it's just too good, you know, that, that you know, this, this can go on. Um, and, and I think that having the long-term data set and seeing what's going on, you know, with freshwater turtles in one place over a long period of time. And the really cool thing is that uh, there is a study by a guy named um, 
Marchand, who was a student of Archie Carr's, he actually went into dentistry. He was my dentist when I, when I was a when I was undergrad. I wondered oh, where he ended up. This guy Lewis Marchand, um, who actually I think Carr and Marchand named Graptomy's Barbarite. That's what I thought. That's why yeah. you knew that name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so uh, Marchand did his master's thesis in here and collected the data in the late 1940s. So that's why we know that. Stranothrus Minor was not in Rainbow Run in the 1940s, and somebody brought it here. And I think that Peter Scott's going to be able to figure out where it came where from. Where they came from? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm interested to see they might, if they resemble the Santa Fe ones. That might be some clues, but then again, but genetically, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. it's going to that's, that's going to be it. it. It's it's very possible that they they came from um, from Silver Springs. So. Uh, that's really yeah, somebody, Paul Mulder knows who it is that apparently brought them here. And, and I think that at some point we have to make sure all that gets written down. Well, and that was uh, in that, in the, the Carr and Marchand paper, in, the con species composition has changed a lot. Like you said, that's been something that the miner have just taken off, right? Oh, yeah. So that's well, and, and now I don't know if you heard, we were, <laughs> I was talking to Jerry. Um, Right when we were doing introductions, our last sample, there were actually more concina than minor. So um, concina really is a river turtle, you know, uh, uh, and, and spring runs with clear water are just ideal concina habitat because they can forage all the time. This is why Jerry's turtles in the Santa Fe, they go into the springs when the river clouds up. So they're moving up and down the river all the time. And here, the turtles don't have to move, right? They have seven miles of clear spring run where they can, I mean, just any anywhere you look, there's forage for these guys. So, And this, yeah. this system itself uh, is kind of interesting. It's not super close to the coast, but it just feeds into the Rainbow River. And then that, that's kind of a... So Rainbow Run or Rainbow River... Right, so a run is spring run. People, we do this run and people think it's like we're going jogging or something. <laughs> it's weird. Anyway, rain, a, a spring run, like Hitchtuckney Spring Run, yeah. is a kind of a river. And the, the Rainbow River flows into the Withlacoochee River, and then the Withlacoochee River flows into the Gulf of Mexico down near Crystal River. Um, yeah, but this, this coast of Florida and a lot of Florida, I mean, it just, you have so many of these really nice springs. And I, I hope that people appreciate them. Floridians love them, but we kind of love them to death. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at Ixchtuckney, they have a, a, a limit on how many people can go down the river every day. As far as I know, there are no limits here. I mean, we should talk to Jeff Sowards, the, the aquatic refuge guy who's here today about, you know, what are the ideas about limiting how big a boat motor can I have on this river yeah. or how many people per day? It, eventually that'll have to happen. I mean, just the amount of development in this part of Florida is just incredible. And so far, it seems like the, the turtles in this river aren't suffering for it, but certainly other turtles like gopher tortoises are are in bad shape because of the the rate of development um here in florida 
So there's definitely some anthropogenic sort of stressors. I mean, obviously on this area. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing too is curious. I think in one of the papers on the rainbow on on this this system that it was published, you mentioned that over time the cooter size changed. The I guess the average size, and maybe that was due to impacts of boat strikes or something. Um. So. <clears throat> Generally speaking, the, there are now a lot more adult-sized cooters than um, than historically, and I think the the really serious issue that that um, existed probably when when we first got started here was that people were coming here to get turtles to eat, and uh, I've made this point you know, many times and, you know, in meetings with the Game Commission that when people go to get turtles to eat, um, if they're getting pseudomies, the sexual size dimorphism is a real disadvantage for those cooters because what they end up doing is taking the reproductive females. And that's, I mean, it's like what people did with, with sea turtles, taking the nesting females off the beaches, right? So it's the same thing where you're, you're, removing the laying hens and i i'm thinking that 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 probably stopped maybe 20 years ago and it's just taken additional time um to get large numbers of um uh, of reproductive size uh, especially floridana and and consina so the the two big pseudomies that are that are here um and we should see today i mean you'll see some um some seven and eight, and maybe even a ten kilo comes in a female, um, and and I think that's what that's the reason why last time we were here we caught more consina than minor because there are lots of of consina that that you know are two and three and four and five years old. Mm. Are there any ideas in terms of the population size of some of the turtles in here? And it's your toxin that they definitely are. Some of the, the minor populations. It's pretty massive, but uh, is that the same case here? Um, I've tried to do uh, estimates of the population size. So we did one in in that very first paper, uh, in the Florida Scientist paper, and I forget the numbers right now. Um, but we've we've tried to to um, to look at the population size of minor. But it's always just we just do a two-day sample, so we sample one day and come back the next day, yeah. and and so it's the the numbers I don't think are very reliable. Uh, but what, the other thing that we have been doing is to pip tag uh, all of the adult female minor um, with the idea that at some point somebody's going to do a life table for for minor. Are they, right. So we we did. Uh, we did estimates for the pseudomies uh, in a, a paper written. Uh, so Diana Hustis was an Eckerd student who did. We did the paper on pseudomies that was pretty detailed. Um, yeah, but like I said, it, having these different projects, Panama, Bermuda, doing stuff with Gaffney, I haven't done with with the Rainbow Run data. Everything that that could be done. And but now that I can, I'm retired. I can get to work. Yeah, is, yeah. Was, this is a little bit unrelated, but uh, Pritchard had cited you as recording the largest Florida softshell turtle on record, if I remember correctly. Or you re- reported that it was 96 pounds, came from like Okeechobee. What was the story with that? Um, 
think it's in that Florida turtle volume, mm -hmm. and which I edited, by the way. I didn't write it, mm -hmm. right? So I just got, I coerced people into writing the chapters. Mm -hmm. um, it's from Lake Okeechobee, where one of the rivers goes into Lake Okeechobee, mm -hmm. and I thought that it was Pritchard himself who had gotten maybe the skull from it or something like that he said he has this there he has the skeletal remains of a slightly smaller one but okay that big one might be at uf or something is what i heard hmm but i don't remember all the details about someone had caught that. it or what the no, story there's was there's so much stuff on the hard drive that mm -hmm. you know it's hard to find it all yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the I'm florida sorry. turtle uh the i guess uh compilation that you brought together mm -hmm. that's a fascinating piece yeah um, I, I guess what were some of the things that you that you learned from that I'm curious because I mean you, you didn't write every all the chapter obviously but you put it together so there must have been some some cool I guess tidbits of knowledge maybe that that were picked up through doing that or what, what was that process like I guess it's, it's well it was really great um, and I don't know if if y'all have y'all talked to George Heinrichs yet a little you bit, know him? Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, so George was really the one um, who, who got me interested in the idea of getting turtle biologists together in Florida. And we had a couple of meetings at Eckerd, uh, maybe in the 80s and 90s. And then, and then at the turn of the millennium, we were doing it again. And we had this idea that, you know, there's enough expertise that we could, you know, get get a book together on you know what's going on with Florida turtles so George was a huge influence in um, in getting that whole thing started um, and then I think that it it was from uh, my days as a collections manager uh, uh, in uh, in Gainesville at the, the Florida State Museum so I did that for 11 years and I got to know lots and lots of herpetologists. So people like Dale Jackson and Paul Moeller and, and, um, and other people, you know, Pritchard, um, people that were, were doing different turtle studies. And then through Annie, I knew the sea turtle people. So that was like five species right there. Um, and then John Iverson has always been a great buddy of mine. Um, so uh, it, it, it sort of came together. We did a little work here and there to fill in where Somebody said originally, well, I'll do this chapter, and then they they didn't, and we could find somebody. But it, it was great to, 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 like you say, bring all that together. Um, and then uh, in terms of, like, the most interesting things that I learned, um, there are two turtles in Florida that make really remarkable use of um, ephemeral wetlands, and I don't think we appreciate that enough. I mean, people think about amphibians using ephemeral wetlands. Um, so the chicken turtle and the spotted turtle both use ephemeral wetlands. And they, the strategies are completely different. Um, the chicken turtle, when the ponds dry up, the chicken turtles go in the woods. And the spotted turtles go to permanent wetlands. So, uh, you know, for, for spotted turtle survival, you need you know, wetland mosaics because they come out of the permanent wetlands and into these ephemeral wetlands because the resources are so incredible. Um, and um, and then uh, <clears throat> the chicken turtles, I mean, the, the, the folks at SREL, um, and I guess uh, 
uh, Buellman figured this out originally in Virginia that that uh, chicken turtles, you know, they get out and go into woods and hide out, wait for the ponds to fill up again. Um, and I learned from from uh, <clears throat> doing those trips with Iverson, going to look for mud turtles all over, how important ephemeral wetlands are for for certain kinds of turtles. So yellow mud turtles are amazing, right? They'll be underground for most of the year. Ponds in the Sonoran Desert fill up. They all come out. They eat whatever invertebrates and tadpoles, you know, they gorge for a couple of weeks, they mate, and they disappear again. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so it's just, you know, it, it's an amazing thing that turtles can do. And I, and I think that, that figuring out that there were turtles that were using ephemeral wetlands um, in a big way in Florida is really important. It's also really important in terms of conservation, right? You got to know the biology if you're going to do any kind of effective conservation. Uh, and then the other one that I'll mention is one that, so in, in the book, we sort of, we push the idea that the, the mud turtle, so Kynastern and Subrubrum in peninsular Florida really is a different beast. Um, and so now it's Kynastern and Steindachneri. We don't know squat about it. We don't know. We've never seen. We, we've caught Kynastern and Bowri. We've caught gopher tortoises. We've caught Dirichilles. We've never caught a Steindachneri here, but they're here. I think in most cases, you know, you look at, at the data and people find them crossing the road. You catch one in a trap yeah. one time. But I don't know any place where, where people have um, a marked population of Steindachneri and can say, this is Steindachneri habitat. It's like Steindachneri are where you find them. And I think that for a long time, it was, spotted turtles were that way. Right, spotted turtles were where people found them crossing roads, but now there are people with that have done telemetry of of spotted turtles in Florida and Georgia, and people are figuring out, you know, where they go and what they do. Um, Jack's used to the spotted turtles from the northeast. Yeah, the northeast is not a problem, but yeah, I, I, I mean, a couple of guys have recently done a lot with them down here. Right, seen up in like down into like the northern part of the peninsula, but. Like yeah. with the Steindachner, there's almost nothing. Anyone I know that's trapped them or looked for them, you get one. And I've trapped like Bari, and it's if you can get a ton of them consistently, oh, yeah. Yeah, easily. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, it's never like that with Steindachner. It's mm -hmm. like you get one every like ten trap nights or something crazy like mm -hmm. that. Like, there's one location, and I kind of know where this. I don't. I'm not going to say exactly, but someone has. I guess the t most recent TSA meeting, they they hypothesized that that what they do is for the most part. Not even for estivation or anything. They just, when they're not feeding, they bury significantly deep within the mud. Mm -hmm. And they just come out for really short periods of time when rain fills up right. these puddles. Mm -hmm. And the, the, there is a So it could be another turtle that's using ephemeral wetlands right, in yeah. a different way. I, yeah, I, yeah, think, yeah. That, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like it. Even like... Right, yeah, ephemeral wetlands, people seem crossing roads, that's when it's raining, if there's any correlation there. But uh, they're fascinating. It kind of reminds me of the Claudius. Yeah. That's a time of Elise, the, mm -hmm. the beaks, and just the, the, the ferociousness. Well, and, and, and they're not, I mean, the, the defining characteristics are all, all have to do with reduction of the plastron, mm -hmm. which would suggest that, that terrestriality is, I mean, kinos that, are really terrestrial are box turtles 
Yeah. Right. So there are some that that can seal up just as well as a box turtle. Right. And yeah. And 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 Steindachneri is doing something very different. It's it's more reduced, right? Exactly. Yeah. So very, very reduced. Yeah. Very reduced plastron. Yeah. That's that's a really interesting sort of scenario there. I I guess with the uh, yeah, just it's it must be really an interesting thing to see. How long did it take sort of to put together the Florida turtle book? Mm -hmm. It was a long process. Yeah, no, we, we <laughs> yeah. it was six years because um, we we said, you know, oh, it's the turn of the millennium. We need this book. That was 2000. <laughs> and the publication was 2006. <laughs> so it was like uh, it's just, you know, uh, George got together a huge collection of photographs, and part of it is we have lots of really nice photographs, and he was able to, you know, talk to a lot of different people. Um, this guy Dick Bartlett, for example, yeah. gave, a, gave us a lot of nice, I mean, everybody just donated their best pictures. Um, and then Jamie Barichevich, um did a lot of work on the maps. Um, and then, um, you know, I sent everything out to be uh, to be reviewed by what I thought were peer reviewers. I thought we had plenty of reviews, and then when Anders got it, he sent everything out again for more for more reviews. <laughs> um, so I think what came out of it is is really really good. Um, it might not be exactly what some people were hoping for. I think some people were hoping for a book that would uh, be more for the general public. Um, but I think it's a book that, that will, you know, stand the test of time that, that, you know, it documents what we knew about Florida turtles, you know, in the year 2000. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a good compilation. And I, I like the fact that, it, I mean, public can access it. It just takes a little more work, right? Right. <laughs> but, uh. You mentioned uh, trips with Dr. Iverson. That that sounds really interesting, and to look for the kind of sternids. Yeah. What were so? Well, he's actually like? he's the the person who brought me to Rainbow Run. Oh. Wow. So the reason we're here today is because of John Iverson. Oh. Wow. So I started as an undergraduate at UF when John started as a graduate student, and his master's thesis, um, uh, for which Peter Scott sings the praises. Right. is a, a geographic variation in Stranothorus Minor. <laughs> and Peter Scott says, you know, Iverson did a great job with that paper. But to do that paper, I had to skip school every Friday and go to a different spring run. So I think I had to do Calc 2 twice because of John Iverson, <laughs> right? <laughs> because we were always off going to some, you know, and I think I've probably been in most every spring um, certainly in, in, in uh, the northern, northern peninsular Florida. I'm sure Paul Mulder's been in more springs than I have. Um, but, um, yeah, we would go and collect Stranothorus Minor, um, you know, and that was in the days when people were still collecting. You know, you wouldn't think anything of going and catching a bunch of turtles and pickling them. And people were doing it with Graptomies, and we were doing it with Kynosternin in, in, in Mexico. Um, we would get, you know, all the permits you needed. We would get a, a special permit for the turtles and then separate permits for, um, for general herb collecting. 
And I think every year, I want to say maybe from about 73, 74 until the late 80s, um, I would go with John and, and other people. So uh, a guy named Dieter Ojica from Argentina. So it's a, he's now an airline pilot, but he was our Spanish person. You always needed somebody with good Spanish. Yeah. And neither John nor I spoke Spanish. So Diderot used to go. A guy named Ron McGill, who still works for the Metro Dade Zoo uh, down in Miami. Okay. Uh, Cuban extraction. Um, I'm trying to think who else went along as like the third person. One year we went with two vehicles and six people. And we drove all the way down to the Yucatan Peninsula uh-huh. and drove around. So Paul Moeller was on that was on that trip. Um yeah, so I'm pretty sure I've been in every state in Mexico and have collected almost every. Um, I know the one, uh, the one kind of sternum that I haven't collected is Creaseri, the one in in the Yucatan Peninsula. Oh, okay. But but I think everything else. Oh no, some of the new ones that Dick Vote named that are in these little little isolated drainages yeah. um, on the the Pacific side of Mexico. Uh, we didn't get those, but but. No, I can just remember setting traps with with John Iverson just in every. I think every little river in Bond. <laughs> <laughs> Not only have you been to every state, you've been to every state. And this was before Google Maps, right? Right. Yeah. How but, but but UF had a great map library, okay. paper maps, and John would go to the map library <laughs> and Xerox every topo map of the tr- of the the trail that we would go on right of he he'd had the the whole you know sampling regime scheduled and you had a black book in which all the maps had been you know all the maps of the places we were going and the little the little reservoirs would be circled wow. right and you would go oh yeah there's a place coming up on the right it's like 2 miles up here on the right and you could say oh it must be those trees out there right it has <laughs> that has to be it right. stop the car <laughs> throw in a couple of traps and say well we're just a little bit up up you know up the road from you know the next little river when we go we'll go set some traps there and then we'll come back and check these and so you would do that, and inevitably, you know, while you were doing this, some local person would say, are you guys, like, looking for snakes and stuff? Because there's a rattlesnake, like, right over there. <laughs> and so we would just incidentally to, to doing the, the kind of stern and work, we saw lots and lots of really, really cool herps all over Mexico. It was really That's incredible. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was great. And it, um, you have to put a little more effort into it. Nowadays, I feel like it's so easy to mm-hmm. access different areas. It's almost like it's a little bit underappreciated mm-hmm. for how how tough it, it really was to, to get there and, and first discover those things and just analyze that. I mean, that, that's incredible to hear. But, I, you know, I, I feel like um, for us traveling around Mexico, we took a, a lot less precaution than I think you would need to take now. I mean, yeah. we, just, we yeah. just, you know, we would finish up at the end of the day and say, oh, this looks like a good spot. Why don't we camp here? And then the next morning, you know, people would be walking by the tent and you'd realize that you had camped in the trail that went from this little town to the nearest bus stop. 
and all these people are looking at you like, what the hell are you doing? But yeah, I spent a little time in Belize this summer and at the Be Free, uh, Jacob Marlin, who's the director there, was telling us about some trips he used to take, or he even recently driving to Belize, and like you can't. I mean, you can't stop even in some of these spots. It's such a different time back then. I can I can remember being in the car with John and, and this guy, Dieter Ojika, and we were driving, I think, through maybe Oaxaca City, and a policeman blew his whistle and said, stop, stop. And Diderot said, don't stop. Go. <laughs> a good philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, yeah. I'm curious too, like what, because you've traveled a lot, like you said, the museums and and that sort of thing, but what's been maybe like the pinnacle experience in terms of going out in the field or favorite place that you've been to out of all of your your pursuits of turtles? Uh, Um, The the trips to Mexico really stand out. Um, When I was a sophomore in high school, I, I had read Carl Caulfield's book, Snakes and Snake Hunting, and I took the train to uh, Jasper County, South Carolina, and the most fun I've ever had looking for snakes was doing that, you know, going through recent uh, longleaf pine burns in south, southernmost South Carolina and not knowing whether the next snake you see is going to be a canebrake or a copperhead or a king snake or a red rat snake or a rainbow snake. I mean, or there were a lot of people that were just focused on the snakes, but there's like maybe salamander. There's a pseudacris up there. I forget which one it is, but there's a, a local pseudacris that doesn't occur anywhere else. And um, at that time, you could still find uh, uh, Ambistema cingulatum. I don't know if it's if it's still there now. Uh, you know, I remember picking up Dyrakili shells. There were mud turtles everywhere, right? Mud turtles crossing the road. No, but the people that were there, a lot of the other snake hunters, quote unquote snake hunters, were interested in finding diamondbacks and cane breaks. But I just enjoyed this huge diversity of herps. Um, and that was one of the coolest trips. Um, but then I'll say, you know, <clears throat> from o- over the long haul, one of the most interesting things has been. Um, to raise two sons. So my boys are a little older than you guys. Um, so 30 and 34. And uh, maybe is that a lot older than you guys? Yeah, we're 18. Yeah. <laughs> so so we, we grew up, uh, they grew up going to Panama, um, usually in, in July, June, July, May, June, July, we would go to Panama for a month. And then in August, we always went to Bermuda. And Panama, working in the field in Panama is, I mean, you're really remote. You're, you're drinking water that you're catching off the roof. There's no connectivity. I mean, there is now a little bit. Um, we used to just take piles of books for them to read. Then they would go to Bermuda, and Bermuda is like Switzerland or or uh, you know, just it's a European place in the middle of the ocean. And in fact, my family is Swiss, and sometimes in between those two trips, we would go to Switzerland. So 
sort of the, the contrast of going, you know, doing doing turtle work in a remote place and then doing it in a, a super civilized place. Um, just seeing that contrast year after year and watching my boys grow up, you know, doing that was um, was really cool. That's that's cool. That, that real. I mean, it's a great learning experience to travel as a young person and see those see kind of a diversity. A lot of people mm -hmm. in the United States kind of stay in one area, but that's cool. Yeah, and I actually did. I, I made three trips to Africa um, during the time that I was working with Offenberg, and those trips. Um, you know, I, I'm always thinking I would just love to go back to. Uh, so I was at a place called Kubifora up on, on Lake Turkana, okay. hunting fossils. So it was one place where I did go and in the field and, and look for fossils. And I've described the soft-shelled turtles, but but never. Um, there are a bunch of Pelusios mm -hmm. um, fossils come up there. And I had always wanted to do with Pelusios what I did with um, soft-shelled turtles. But it's a project, you know, I borrowed specimens and had them for years and just finally just said, you know, I'm not getting to do this. I had to set all this back and I never, it's one of my big regrets is never doing a, a, a morphological treatment uh, of Pelusios, which, um, which is another really cool, uh, a really cool turtle. Yeah, I got to. Oh, no, I was just speaking about the fossil side necks uh, and some of the skull diagrams in the paper were uh, amazingly drawn and it represented some incredible variation in cranial morphology that I had yeah, no idea I, existed. No, I think that 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 uh, the the diversification of side neck sea turtles is something that that people had really missed up to the point where Gaffney, you know, used his clout to beg, borrow, steal, get all of this material together um both for the these bothrymitids and then also for the pedocnomitid group which includes maybe one or two sea turtle clades mm. um but yeah i mean you have you have side neck turtles that do the loggerhead thing mm -hmm. they do the soft shell thing there's one with a long narrow snout right uh, yeah. uh they there's one that has a, a really round clipping snout like a green turtle yeah. so um, yeah, and then and then in terms of the the actual illustrations that that went into those publications, one of the really amazing assets of the uh, American Museum of Natural History was this illustrators core, and uh, three people in particular. There's an old guy Chester Tarka. He was like the the kingpin, and then Lorraine Meeker. Uh, and then a guy named Frank Ippolito, and and the three of them are responsible for the majority of the illustrations. So they also had they had interns that also would come, you know, learning to do scientific illustration. And I think you know with digital photography, what it is, and um, um, different kinds of imaging that people can do now, maybe scientific illustration is is getting really rare. But when you go back and, and look at some of those those images, I mean, the nicest things from, from Gaffney's work is where you have um, you have an image and then you have a line drawing next to it. And the line drawing is is telling you what you're seeing in the image. And and um, gosh, the, 
the millions of dollars that the American Museum <laughs> must have put into all of those illustrations. It just, you know, it boggles the mind that that um, that all that all that got done, and and Gene was just extremely good about making sure that all the illustrations were perfect, right? Anatomically correct, and and um, and then kept organized. I mean, just the, the logistics of doing something like like that big Bothrymited monograph, it's just a huge amount of work. Um, and it, it was just fantastic to be able to to work with him over over a lot of years. Uh, it highlights I, one of the things when I first saw that paper, just it was incredible to see the diversity of the Pelamidusoides mm -hmm. historically. Right. I mean, you look at contemporarily, <laughs> and uh, you, I mean, there's compared to historically, there's so few species right. in that group. Right. It's basically Podocnemus is all, that's, right. is all right. that's left. And then, yeah, when you, you think about there's a, there's a whole, um, of, of what are very likely um, uh, marine podocnemitids, and and they just turn up everywhere. I mean, they're in the Caribbean, they're in Cuba, and they're in Puerto Rico, and they're in South Carolina, and they're in Colombia. Um, then they're over, you know, in Africa, so um, India. So they're they're worldwide, and right. and so side neck turtles did as well as sea turtles. Uh, as as modern chelonioids, um, and and at least twice. So there's multiple radiations of, of yeah yeah yeah. Of, yeah yeah. So Annie and I were just asked about. We did a, a an introductory chapter for a, a turtle methods a sea turtle methods manual. So um, we did a just a, it's an introduction to. Uh, evolution, life history, and biology of sea turtles. It's like four pages, and they're going to redo this volume. It's 25 years old now, and and they've just asked us, would would we contribute? You know, do that introductory um, chapter again. And I'm looking forward to getting caught up on on more of uh, the work that's been done recently um, that goes into the question of of how many, um, how many times have turtles gone marine? Right. Um, it's fascinating. It's, uh, it's just a, it's a bunch. It's and it's tough to really narrow it down too. Like when you think about the the radiations, like you said, the the I guess geographic diversity of the the side neck turtles just historically is incredible, and, and actually trying to match that up with predictions of just how the physiographic changes that were occurring at the time mm -hmm. it's that that's a whole task in itself i mean do you when it comes to diversity what, what do you think exactly about that distribution what does that say about the biogeography of the time or is it it's, it's just, i think it's a combination of plate movement but then just the stochasticity of lineages blinking out versus other lineages for whatever reason hitting hitting someplace at the right time that led to the kind of diversification that you see with you know a, a lot of these bothromited uh, species that that you know that gene came up with and and we described 
Um, they're all from like a, a relatively short period, you know, in terms of turtle evolution, a relatively short period from Morocco. It's like one place, and this is where, where all these guys are. And so what was going on, you know, I think it goes back to the question, you know, how, how easy is it to, to figure out questions of why, right? Mm -hmm. Why did this happen? We know what happened, right? They're the bones. You can see the bones. <laughs> but, but what was it that led to that? Boy, that's, that's a lot harder. That's a lot harder a, a question to, to delve into. Um, but I think, you know, nowadays, more and more papers are be, being written by sets of people with different expertise. Mm -hmm. So you get some historical geologists to come work with the turtle biologists and can do a better uh, a better job of sorting out the relationship of, of plate movements with why like Hararippi mitids ended up on both sides of, of the Atlantic. It's, I mean, it's fascinating to think about just how stuff has changed so drastically over time and we really have no evolution by natural selection explains small variation, but we don't really have much of a, a basis to explain these large jumps over time. It's, mm -hmm. it's so interesting to think about that whole concept yeah. that drives so much of biology is really kind of, there's not a lot behind that. It's the history. Well, and, and for folks that are interested in, in that, uh, this guy, Olivier Riepel, He's a developmental biologist mostly, but also a turtle guy. Mm -hmm. um, he recently published a book, uh, Turtles as Hopeful Monsters. Uh. Um, and it's sort of idiosyncratic, but, but it's worth a read. I mean, it's, it really, <clears throat> I think he's on the cusp of, of something um, where it seems to be Evo Devo. So, 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 uh, yeah, this guy, Max Hecht, is a professor at Queens College in, in, um, in New York City. He used to come to the American Museum all the time when I was a postdoc there. And he would, he always mentioned this fact that, you know, if you have a mutation very early in development, the implications are huge, right? And, and basically what Riepel is saying is that how, that's how we got turtles. Right. right? You had this huge change that, that happened very early in development, right? Um, and so I think turtles are a, you know, uh, are a good example of a group that somebody with the right training could do what we were talking about just a little while ago about, you know, does it really matter that you know what, what these genes are doing? But if you know what part of turtle development they control, and then you can see where they're shared among different groups of turtles. I mean, turtles have been around for so freaking long, right? So, you know, Gaffney and I have always said, Pleurodires, Cryptodires, they split in the Triassic. Other people say, oh, no, 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 you guys are wrong. But there's a good chance that Pleurodires and Cryptodires, that, that this thing called Proterocursus, really is a pleurodire. Um, it has a pelvis fused into the shell. So, and it has, there's some difference, I can't remember right now, how many thoracic vertebrae 
and it's got the right number to be a a a, a, um, a pluridire and not a cryptodire. Um, so the point is that you have living pluridires and living cryptodires that you can get the genes from and say, oh, holy shit, this is the gene that makes the, the neck go sideways or, 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 or not. I um, mean, yeah, technically, yeah. The, the morphology. And maybe, and, and, uh, and maybe, you know, you, you can detect that that comes from within cryptodires or that it's a completely different set of genes in pluridires or cryptodires that, that end up um, controlling the, the cervical articulations. I mean, you should theoretically be able to back up morphological phylogenies with genetics, but it's just tough to say, are we capturing mm -hmm. all variation with two different data sets? And like, where do they overlap? It's sort of hard to... Well, I think people people have been doing it. Um, you know, certainly uh, there's there's agreement at at the family level. You know, the that the paper that that Gene and I uh, put together a phylogeny of turtles. It's the most. It's my most cited paper. And Gene and I basically decided one day, oh, we're going to contribute a chapter to this volume by this guy Michael Benton. Let's just get all the cladograms that we have and put them all in the same paper. And it was like a week. <laughs> we just like whipped wow. together this this paper. And, and, and again, really good illustrators made the cladograms. has a few figures in it. But it was like the first complete phylogeny of turtles. Um, and uh, what we came up with in terms of living you know, where you can get the molecular data, those groups are the groups. I mean, there's some, I mean, <clears throat> we had this thing called trianicoidea, where we were saying that kinosternids are related to soft-shell turtles. That was mostly my fault. And then the alternative was what E.E. E. Williams said was, oh no, uh, uh, snapping turtles and and uh, and kinosternids belong together. And it's, I mean, that's sort of the maybe one of the bigger molecular uh, disagreements with what we said based on on morphology but there's lots of stuff like you know derm the fact that dermatemes goes with kinosternin right, right? Mm -hmm. um, the caretachelis and soft-shell turtles going together the testudinoidea I mean comes out you know so yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, I went into the library and pay, I've seen that paper cited a lot. I think we all have, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah. I went in and actually found the volume because I'd never been able to access it. Mm -hmm. It's going through that. That's just fascinating. Play like the, the intra familial relationships, but you also sort of place turtles in context of diapsids, synapsids, and, and that's changed, of course, but it was right. Right. Well, I, th I think we can wrap up because we're uh, we, we're trying to get into the water. But I, for a last question, yeah, I want to go catch a turtle. Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> in the same boat. But uh, we spent a long time talking about them. Now we need to go catch some. But uh, I guess for a last question, um, sort of, if you had like one major piece of advice for someone interested in getting into herpetology or turtles as a career, what what would that be? Go to a go to a good college. <laughs> yeah, you have to get into a, a a good program. 
and then do the very best that you can. I um, I always counsel students that if you can if you can do it, do a math minor, right? Along with your bio major, your zoology major, whatever. Uh, so there's a there's a student here today, um, an Eckerd student, uh, Christina. Lopez, uh, yeah, Lopez Miranda. So she's from Mexico City, and she worked for us in Panama this year. And she came to talk to me since she got back from Panama, and I got back from uh, from Panama as well. Um, and it turns out she's taking Calc three, and I'm like, this is it, right? Yes. You're golden, right? Because yeah. she's 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 really good. Uh, she's a good biologist to start with, and. I think she's doing a chem minor and a math minor. So those are the kinds of things that will, I mean, there's just so many people that want to get into grad school. And I think the number of, of places in grad school is always limited. So having good academic credentials, but then also doing stuff like this, right? Having, having field experience uh, on your repertoire. You don't know how many, uh, uh, advertisements I see for students to help with sea turtle projects who can drive an ATV, right? So practical experience really does count for something. And when I write letters of recommendation, uh, especially for students that have helped with this project, I always talk about, you know, this is a kid that will show up, right, when you ask them to and, and work hard all day, which not everybody with straight A's will do that, right? Mm -hmm. So, so being able to to do field work um, is really good. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, yeah. we'll we'll take that advice to heart and go get so. in the water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll do that. But uh, right. that's going to conclude this season finale. I guess is kind of where we're at. But uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one. Good. Yeah. All right, we're here with uh, Dr. Peter Scott, who recently started a position uh, as a just I guess I would say where you... uh, so uh, assistant professor at Eckerd College in Saint Petersburg, Florida. Cool. Yeah, we actually met back at one of the Desert Tortoise Symposium yep. meetings. Uh, I think it was an auction. I got some yep. sea turtle books. I remember yep. that was. Uh, but uh, it's it's cool to meet up later on and and sort of cross paths again but uh i guess dr scott can give us just a little overview of some of the stuff we we've been busy all day uh working up cooters and a lot of different species here at rainbow springs but what kind of questions are we asking with these turtles and yeah so we're asking a number of questions we're actually at um dr peter malin's kind of long-term study site he's the one that established these turtle surveys and what we're what we're after are a number of things predominantly we're after understanding long-term demographics and population trends um, that we hope we can turn into these things we call life tables which give us ideas for how long each life stage lives and the proportion of survivorship and mortality those life stages suffer um, and those are really really useful um, when we think about conservation practices because those are the numbers we want when we want to understand how our actions are potentially impacting populations and they can kind of help inform how much pop, how kind of how much extra stress populations can can undergo before they they might get extirpated or really start tanking 
That's a really interesting way to put a good overview. And that's all sort of the physical, like just actually yep. tracking the turtles, recapturing. We can get those ideas yep. through math, math, I guess, modeling. Yep. You're bringing sort of a genetics perspective to the table, too. Um, I guess we're... It, what, do you have sort of questions for the future there? And Yeah, so some of the, the things we're thinking about with genetics is we kind of have two ways we think about populations. We think about a census size, which is how many animals are physically there. Um, and then we think about this other idea, which is an effective population size, which is the number of individuals that are actually contributing basically genes to future generations. And we think, you know, in wild populations, like, oh, yeah, of course, they're all doing pretty well. They're healthy. They're surviving. They must all be breeding and reproducing. But what we know from other studies is, is generally that's truly not the case. And so when we go from one generation to the next, it ends up being that the future generations often only parented by something like 5 or 10% of the last generation. And so that uh, then gives us kind of an estimate of how, how healthy or inbred or uninbred or outbred populations are. So, so having those correlates gives us a, a way to measure or think about a population's genetic health. Um, and folks kind of generally have some kind of hand-wavy ways of thinking about how census size and effective population size correlate but we don't have a real good handle on how consistently some kind of back of the envelope rules gener or generalities people use um, really hold up. And so that's something we kind of hope we can do is because this, this has been a really long-term study is look at both um, current effective population size and potentially even what effective population size was like you know, 10 or 15 years ago because we have those stored um, banked blood samples. All right, that's that's a really interesting. You can use genetics to actually get these ideas for the size of a population. Yep. What kind of markers do you use for that kind of thing? Or you can use a lot of different types of markers. Generally, you want to use things that um, represent the nuclear genome. Um, I've been doing lots of different sorts of genomic sequencing of turtles, both whole genome resequencing. So we're we're actually getting all you know. 2.8 billion or so base pairs that exist in a, in a turtle genome. And then there's other ways that we can look at um, it reduced genomic sequencing. So we can use kind of some, some special lab magic to sequence the same couple percent of a genome across lots and lots of turtles, which also can, can give us a very good size of genetic health and, and things like inbreeding potential or depression and, and ge genetic diversity or heterozygosity. That's really interesting. Yeah. You had a one of the pavers, I think, recently the, with the desert tortoise, the translocations, that's something. Yep. I mean, that's different. You're looking at heterozygosity, but yep. kind of a cool tool. And yeah, but heterozygosity is generally an indicator of, of long-term genetic health. And so when populations, it's it's basically the the inverse of being inbred. So when we're inbred, we're, we lose heterozygosity through inbreeding. And so, um, so yeah, so it's kind of that, that kind, of kind of tool. And what, yeah desert tortoise thing was fun we kind of found that those those critters that had the highest heterozygosity have the highest survivorship if we think about moving animals around or translocating um, individuals from one population to another to try to augment population sizes almost i mean it makes sense right yep. you've got individuals with the most variability yep. genetically it's just there's a chance that they're going to be more successful through 
the totality of sort of those effects. Yep. Yeah. That's uh, that's really cool. I guess maybe the last thing we can touch on, we're just having a big discussion about this, but we'll we'll get wrapped up, is the situation with the, the pseudomies. Oh, yeah. And that was something you yeah. worked on, but maybe you can give us the rundown there. <laughs> yeah, we need, we need to get that wrapped up, but we, we did sequence um, about 80 pseudomies genomes from, from all um, representatives, um, and, you know, between five and ten of each kind of proposed nominal taxa, including subspecies. And, and we're kind of asking, you know, how well do things like Peninsularis hold up versus Floridana or other, other subspecies of Kinsina. There's been lots of described diversity within the wide-ranging river cooters, Sudamese Kinsina, and, and whether or not any of those kind of hold up genetically. Um, and then also looking at things like red belly turtles and and the the Texas cooters, Gorzugi and um, Texana, um, and kind of to summarize what it look what it looks like the data are showing us is that um, Peninsularis is just a, a type of of Floridana or nested within that group of turtles, and and also similarly Swaniensis is kind of nested within the larger Kinsena clade of turtles, and so it looks like we kind of have a Florida cooter, a river cooter three red bellies and, and a couple Texas critters. Are those, could you make the argument that Suwaniensis is its own clade within a clade? Is that something that you... Um, in, in terms of species level diversity, folks generally aren't super fond of that. Um, right. I think if folks like Suwaniensis as a subspecies, it's as described, if you have morphology that holds up that um or you know color patterns or you know chromatic variation that holds up and you, and you want to keep that as a subspecies that would be perfectly kind of valid um but because it's it's nested pretty high up in the rest of Kinsena, um generally when we have relationships like this kind of the the two alternative approaches that are considered kind of kosher are either to subsume one uh, group into the rest or or to make basically all the other populations or clades at that level their own species as well and I don't think that there's there'd be lots of support for that within within the consent there's kind of lots of clades or subpopulations within consent that are all they're all and they're all pretty much just geographically cohesive right. um, so like you know animals that live in similar watersheds are more closely related to each other than those from further away and so it kind of you know, makes sense from that biogeographic standpoint. Cool. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap this as a quick one. We'll add on, but thanks for sitting down with us. Of course. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hope you're enjoying the Florida weather. And Florida's great. So Turtles are all over. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. All right. This is the last part of the uh, season one finale of the Colonia cast. Uh, we're actually recording this more than a month after the first part. Uh, and as you can see, we've gotten a little silly just because this is our last um, recording of season one. Uh, but we're joined by Gabe Weikert, who is the Bird Herp Club. Uh, he's also pretty heavily involved with herp stuff, and he's all over the place. Uh, if you look on his Instagram, he's all around. So uh, we're excited to talk to him but about his experience at uh, – mostly a rainbow run but just with herps and turtles in general so thanks for coming on for a, a little short one gabe yeah thank you so much guys all right well i i mean so you guys were so this was something we wanted to do 
kind of early on, like right after the the first survey that we did, like late October. Uh, but just all of our schedules got kind of crazy. We're all in college now and just kind of getting through that was a lot. But since then, you guys were literally at a survey there yesterday. Uh, maybe just give us a, what, what were you guys finding and you know, what's that experience like, like in the water kind of as a student? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of give the spiel on what Rainbow River is, kind of why we do it. Dr. Malin, you obviously talked to Dr. Malin about it. Long-term study at Rainbow River, one of the larger spring systems in Florida. Um, we have our typical, we have, you know, Consina, Swaniensis, and then we also have Nelson I for our pseudomies. And then we have, we usually get Florida soft shells. We usually get one snapper. We didn't get one yesterday. And then we get our musk turtles as well, um, Odoratus and Minor. And I mean, basically, as Herp Club president, I just kind of facilitate the trip for everybody, make sure that we can get as many students involved as possible, as many new faces who have never done research work, and just make sure the trip goes smoothly and make sure that people know about it so they can get involved. So I'm just in charge of, like, if it needs anything, I have to provide it, basically. That's, so Dr. Malin has, doesn't have to worry about anything except for showing up. Yeah. And I'm kind of a point man, too. Right. You guys. And what's the process for that? Like everyone shows up at Eckerd because the spring is I mean, it's a, it's kind of a haul from from Eckerd. Itself. Yeah. So, yeah. We kind of put together a pretty good plan on like we we meet up at like 7 a.m. Everyone kind of carpools together. I had to lobby for a budget money and pit tags and other stuff. So I, you know, it's really nice that Eckerd does that, that I can just we can have a club and get money from the school to pay for things. So we kind of meet up. Everyone drives to Rainbow River after I've collected all our supplies. And then we get to Rainbow. And like you guys saw when we were there and anyone who ever comes another time is we, we get there at 10, like around 10. And by 10 o'clock, we're trying to get into the water and start our surveying because we have a lot of things to do that day. Thankfully, it can be a big survey, but we have so many like um, people on turtles that like it usually goes pretty smoothly and everyone gets to do a lot of important work i think it's a great entry level like but also it's higher level because it's dr millen's long-term study so it's cool that it you know you bring in we usually bring in people like we bring in people like you guys who know a lot or you know dr Malin. we just brought on dr scott um and having all those people but also there's kids who when you guys were there and even yesterday showed up for the first time ever so i really i really like that about our surveys yeah, that's kind of how it goes down. We get to Rainbow. We do our surveying. By 2 o'clock, we're trying to have turtles go into x-rays. So it's just kind of like a flowing survey that, like in that way. What I remember, too, when, when you were there, too, it was impressive how involved you were in terms of like a leadership role. Like you were kind of running around getting people to do stuff. Like, and that that's a, that's a tough sort of thing to do. Is that something that's kind of always on your mind, like – I need to be in these places to try to facilitate that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if, I mean, obviously people listening weren't there, but you guys, some of you guys saw, um, there's a, a lot of people are doing certain things and I'm just kind of there to make sure that like, Oh, we don't have pit tags for the must turtles. I go and grab some. I'm just like constantly thinking about what we're not doing, what we haven't done. That's kind of like the role I've taken in Dr. Gessling's lab. I feel like a lot of the time it's a lot of problem solving for just little issues that we run into. But um, 
you know, I run into a problem where like we have people standing around at the survey and we, we need to get out of there because we could end up being there for a long time. And people see me just walking, running around thinking I'm just having a good time, which Jack, Jack knows, like, there's a reason I go over to that Sternothrus table because we get yeah. done with it quickly and then we get to play with other turtles. But no, mind you, you, you I'm get through a, that I'm quick too. It's, it's yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah. But the, mind you, there's a lot of other things going on too. I'm trying to make sure we're at the vet's office in time too because they, they're going to get annoyed if we, you know, if we show up at three o'clock and they closed at noon. You know, there's just all these silly things. And I've always been in, in athletics and been like a captain of my team and been like a leader. So, like, it's been easy for me to take on that role. But yeah, the the sports and the sports connection is good. I I like to tell people that too. Like, I played football freshman year. Jack did it, I think, the whole time. And it's just yeah. like that kind of thing carries over a lot to to research more than people think. If you don't get seriously injured, it builds a lot of good, uh, I think, skills and like realistic leadership skills and just ability to kind of work as a team, that sort of thing. So that that's yeah. an interesting mission. I can definitely, I would say, well, there's a lot of like aspects of getting scratched up and bit by turtles and you and teamwork and other aspects. And then also in the same way, like, I don't know, you got to be athletic to catch turtles. So I think that's something that's kind of missed on a lot of time. The kind of surveying we're talking about doing, you got to be able to swim. You got to be able to swim faster and swim with soft shells and stuff. So, it's, you know, I think it's a good connection I have. I actually started off at Eckerd playing soccer my first year, and then I quit to do turtle stuff. So, yeah. Well, spe speaking of soft shells and swimming, I think he, we, so you guys were there yesterday. Yeah. You got to have some every time you get in the water. For anyone that hasn't snorkeled for turtles, there's always when you get in the water, it's always a different adventure. I mean, because you guys are in there for two, three hours. I mean, you always are finding something new. What was what was the story from yesterday? What was the coolest snorkeling find? Or I think Jack's got this one because I was freaking out when Jack brought his GoPro to me after. Oh yeah, well. Uh, what he's he's referring to is as we were leaving the survey. This actually isn't turtle related. It's it was totally. Uh, I I had never seen a I never seen a water snake actually in a spring run. It was a huge there was a huge brown water snake just on the bottoms coming up like parallel, uh, well not parallel directly in front of me, and I just swam over and got my GoPro out and I totally expected it to be fearful and try to get away. We do. But it comes right up to the camera and just like pokes its face up and follows me around. And then when it went away, I just I just let it go. I didn't even try to catch it. I had too much respect for it at that point because, I mean, but yeah. And then and no one was believing me. I should start started showing people the video, and they're like, "Holy crap, that's that's insane." Yeah, I will say we also. I mean, it was a good survey yesterday, but we had a slow one. I will say, um, Dr. Malin just sent me the numbers, and it was only seventy turtles, which. If you, if you put that into perspective, which I don't know if that's worrisome, um, on this date a year ago, literally today, there's 240 turtles caught. So I don't know if it was temperature. I think we debated about canceling last year's because it was so cold, which definitely in the cold weather, I feel like slows down turtles. They're more dependent on basking, makes us more likely to catch them. But big discrepancy between 240 and 70 in one year. It's kind of, and then, you know, every survey since that 240 turtle survey has been slowly decreasing. So 
it's kind of something that I don't know if it's because we're surveying again. We came out of COVID. That's why we did that survey last year was our first one out of COVID. But we're still I'm still trying to figure out what's going on there. I really want to do a survey on like a 50 degree day and just see if we just catch a ton of turtles. And maybe that'll solve my problem that is continuing to perplex me. But it was still a good survey yesterday. Are those numbers biased towards uh, amidids? Like when you had like 200 plus turtles, are you are they mostly cooters or was the Sternopterus level change much between those two? Uh, I can I can pull it up pretty quickly because I just typed in my notes app after every single one. But um, I will say musk turtles. It is like you you have like when it's those types of days, you have like a few. I would say buckets full of, of musk turtles. It's it's pretty crazy. I. So it looks like that day we had 122 minor and 23 odor. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. And last year we did have a survey, though, that we got more consina than minor, 55 to 54. So usually it's just a ton of minor, which if people don't know, they weren't minor were introduced to um, Rainbow like 70 years ago somewhere. So they're not actually um, native, but so they're kind of taking over the odoratus. That's interesting. You said the the 240 turtle survey that was r right after that was the first one after COVID. Yeah, so there have been about I think a year and a half of no no surveying. Right, right, and yeah. So between now and then, you've had is that what six surveys then or four surveys? Um, one, two, three. We've had four. Yeah. Um, the thing that I will say is it was like 140, 130 one like 25 somewhere in there and then this one's a big drop off but it's 80 degrees in december it's kind of i feel like that's kind of an outlier and i feel like last year could be an outlier so like in that way it's like i still need some more weather differences but it could be release strategies i've thought about that too um there's a lot of different things that could be going into that but i'd love to hear what you guys have to think about it too yeah i mean i think it's interesting it's like the the only thing I, I think about is that you, you don't survey super frequently, which is not, I mean, obviously that's a, it's a tough thing. You understand it more than most in terms of the logistics behind it to, to coordinate even two times a year is, is <laughs> that's, that's a lot of work, but I would just kind of wonder like short-term trends. I mean, it's certainly something and maybe it means something, but when you're talking about like turtle population dynamics, it, can take a long time for the, those trends to manifest. Like I, I think about, and I, I mean, I, I think that as kids too, we have kind of a different, not maybe not kids, but younger, mm -hmm. younger men, I guess uh, we have kind of a different perspective. Um, it's like shorter term perspective. Whereas a lot of times I feel like things maybe fluctuate. They oscillate a bit, a bit more than, than we think when you look at it long term. Like for me, when COVID hit and everything, I had all this big psychological bias, like, oh, man, the creek near me is just clear as day. I mean, this is just ridiculous. And then in hindsight, after going back for a few years after the fact, it was a really different, at least in the, the visible aspect that I was looking at than, than years after the fact. So, I, I mean, that's just for me, that kind of stands out. And I was thinking about that even today, like short-term trends are tough to make long-term forecasts, I guess, but it's something, right? Yeah. Um, I certainly, you know, I, you know, I talked to Dr. Gessling about it and Dr. Malin who have been on this project for a while. And, 
you know, they're just like, yeah, it's whatever. We'll see <laughs> until we see like actual, and you know, Bill, Bill Hawthorne, who used to be president of Herb Club, you guys, some of you guys have met as well. He also works for the Springs Institute and has surveyed there. And he said that there, it was something with a fish abundance or diversity was really low, but it's the lowest, you know, for in a, like it's the lowest it's been in a very long time. So I'm, I'm starting to put those things together, but at the same time, like you said, like it could just be, you know, the weather that day or who's catching turtles or, you know, what the turtles are doing. It, it's totally, we'd have to wait a lot longer to see if anything happened. But the difficult thing is sometimes we could wait too long and never know. And then there could be, you know, so it's, I guess it's, you know, this or that. Yeah, it's, it was fun to, to be out there too. And uh, I mean, yeah, the, in terms of the trends, it's, it's just tough to predict like with the uh, I, well, I mean, some of the, the published reports and like Cooters at blue spring um, on the the Atlantic coast of Florida, they, there's a time with some of their models, there's a time effect. Even they survey actually not too frequent either, but there's some level of uh, like recapture probability has a time effect to it. So it seems like maybe certain individuals are in there at different times and it's just kind of tough, but uh, yeah, it's, it's cool to just, I mean, any trend is a trend, right? And it's uh, it's cool to see how it adds up over time. Yeah. So I, I just pulled up this, you know, how I alluded a little bit to the must turtles kind of going like this, they kind of did this over the last uh, I would uh, it says from since like 1985, but there's been a like like literally it's been you know a trend one way and the other. Miners going up and odoratus is just going straight down, and and that took at least like 50 years to figure out of data, yeah. but it's pretty clear now. There's like an eight to one ratio of miner to odoratus when odoratus used to be 100 percent of the population. So, um, but that took, that took a long time too. Still, Why do you think miners are more successful in this habitat than odoratus? Um, you know, I haven't really thought about it that much. I mean, what do you think? You think I think that you know, miner are just naturally a more spring-going species that you're gonna find. And I mean, you think about all of our Santa Fe stuff. That if you guys have ever you know been to Santa Fe, it's like Itchtuckney is full of miner. Um, obviously I'm pretty sure they're native there as well. Yeah. I've talked yep. to, yeah. So, um, and then odoratus are just, I feel like they're just smaller there at, at rainbow. So you can definitely see that it's very plat that, you know, they're plastic. So in Florida, they're a lot smaller than in up North where they're, you know, they get a lot bigger. And so I think it's gotta be size size or maybe the niche that they're filling could be a lot of things, but I would say, yeah. It's probably not done either, because if you look at like Itchituckney or other springs where loggerheads are native, uh, and so are odoratus, you tend to, you tend to have a really low, like a crazy ratio of like odoratus to minor. It's like one odoratus for every fifty, a hundred, one hundred and fifty minor. Like it, I think it's, it's probably going to keep going down uh, if it follows the trend that you see in other springs. But mm -hmm. overall, they. It might, it's probably just other forms of competition that, that I would think, but. Is the abundance of minor in there, is it at the same level the odoratus were at prior to the minor being introduced or is it surpassing even that? 
Well, what's interesting is, so I've been told by um, Malin and Guessing that they were they were physically introduced by someone who was used to be a biologist, but they're actually a poacher who kind of just did what they wanted. And so there was no, there was no minor at all. And so to that point, I mean, it, so it just, it start, I want to see what year the data started, but at some point they got introduced and there was none whatsoever. And then it's just been slowly climbing up. So I, there, I mean, maybe there were some who just didn't know because they weren't surveying it. And maybe it's, it's just trends with the water and stuff. And maybe that's what's happening, you know, like we see in other springs. But I would say we, we won't know because you would never know if minor would. I mean, I don't think people were surveying that the river back then. So really. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. But it, like looking at the trends over time, it's certainly kind of climbed. That, that mm -hmm. proportion has changed. And too, like if you just had a five or. 10 year snippet you might not think anything's going on like with turtles it takes mm -hmm. turtles take a long time so it's uh but it's cool that that data is there to begin with and it it's even to some aspect it's 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 even cooler the fact that so many students have been involved with collecting that over that amount of time and that not only is the data there and it's really impactful data but it's also had an impact on at this point, probably hundreds of biologists that are kind of the future generation. That That is a really, that's a cool thing. Yeah, I kind of sell it as that to a lot of people. Um, I really try to get to like freshmen and sophomores. I go into our introductory bio courses and tell them about it because, I mean, this is the best way to get into it. It's the best way to start working with Dr. Gessling. I didn't start this way, but I know a lot of people did. A lot of theses have been done on this projects with specifically the odoratus and and the minor but you know i mean we have a student jorge well he's no student but he went on to um masters and now he's going to i think utah state for his phd and he did his thesis here on the musturals as well so i the projects have provided as well for our students which i think is awesome and it's going to be great for me too I got to meet you guys and work at Santa Fe for the last few weeks with Jack and I saw Michael there too. And I plan on keep on doing that and just getting involved more with turtles. Cause like I told you guys before, like I was doing gopher tortoise research all the time. I love gopher tortoises, but they're not like my calling either. I wouldn't say like, I love them to death, but I like to swim and catch turtles. So. Yeah. It's a, that's a different thing. <laughs> about the swimming is just really totally different than like hiking or something it's i don't know i like it i like it a lot better if i had to be to be honest right well i think we're starting to come up here but i i just for gabe uh i'm curious like what what are you thinking like future plans you have air wise or <laughs> um you know really to like be very like, I don't know, I guess presumptive about it. I would, I would really like, I mean, I would think that maybe a PhD is somewhere in there pursuing grad school and all that stuff and maybe becoming a professor and doing research. But um, I don't know if that's me completely. I'm not really, I like to, I'm more like, you know, someone who enjoys surveys a lot more than, you know, sitting in a lab and writing a paper. So I don't know where it's going, but I also got to, maybe I'll find that, you know, in the next few years I've, 
jumped right into things for my freshman year doing research. And I feel like now I can finally slow down right now and try to figure out what I want to do. But otherwise, outside of that, you know, just do turtle research wherever it happens, whenever it happens. But I'm just going to continue to make connections with people like you guys. And hopefully, you know, I'll find my place somewhere. Um, but it'll probably be with river turtles. I would really hope so. Maybe up in Ohio where I'm back, where I'm from with some terrestrial turtle species, but I'm not really sure. It's just going to be, I'm going to be working probably with Dr. Gessling over these next few years. So maybe the gopher tortoise stuff will take over, but <laughs> I kind of hope not, but we'll see. That's cool. Yeah. I feel like for all of us too, it's like, like a lot of people, I don't know, they probably realize, but a lot of people just look at us like we're all interested in that sort of thing and they think oh these guys have it figured out to some extent but realistically like career-wise i don't know if any of us know like exactly no. what we do. <laughs> i mean i'm in pretty much i'm in a very similar boat like i just i the only thing i want to be involved in i want to be heavily involved in turtle research and uh pursue i want to yeah. go to grad school but like i just i don't have much else dotted out other than other than that yeah plans to buy a house somewhere on a river somewhere in the south oh yeah that actually is something every morning i was planning on buying or whatever yeah yeah well yeah Yeah, i'd love to just buy a piece of land uh, even with no house on it, just live in an RV for, for a while and eventually build something. But just to have, just to own a piece of land or something. That, I don't know. That's pretty pretty off topic, but no, it's not. Um, but have you? Yeah, sorry. Never mind. I don't know. I was going off to the distant place. <laughs> I was like, what, do we still want to keep talking about turtles? Or no? I mean, I think no. we can we can wrap up. But uh, okay. yeah, just I mean. I have one more question, actually. I'm curious. I, I guess yeah. when I well, I first heard about Eckerd a long time ago from someone, and I went to North Where's Carolina and did this like study away thing, and uh, uh, it was like to me that the turtles were like he he told me everyone knew about the turtles there, and that that was kind of a big thing. I'm just curious what what is. <laughs> Is are they like? Is that project kind of a famous thing at the school? Does everyone want to participate in it, or how does that work? Well, I've talked to Bill a lot about this. Um, we definitely have some a good group of herpetologists here, a very good group, I would say. Um, you know, Dr. Scott has done awesome things with you know intermediates, and then also desert tortoises. And Dr. Milan's always been doing his. Um, sea turtle research. I know his sea turtle research that he's been doing with his wife is massive. I don't know really how it's related um, because I don't know much about sea turtles and I don't talk to him about that stuff. I talk to him about Rainbow River stuff, but I know the Rainbow River turtle survey is one of the like, one of the longer ones that's still going on today where students are involved in the aspect that we, the way they are. Um, this campus is a bit like, it's just a lot of animal people, big marine science school, big biology school, environmental studies. You know, if you go around anywhere at night, there's, there's, I would say any given night, there's kids catching snakes in ponds or whatever. Like this school, it's very, it's very, I don't know, animal oriented. Like everyone's allowed to have pets and stuff. You know, we have a chameleon. 
that I've heard stories of people having Diamondback Terrapins and stuff. So like it, it is, it's just like an animal school and there's a lot of people who care about reptiles here. And so that's how like Gessling got here as well. Um, and we kind of cover all aspects of turtles, sea turtles, tortoises, and river turtles. So I don't know. It's just a turtle school. That's all I have to say about it, I guess. Yeah, it's a, it is a, from all accounts, and that's just another one. It's like, it's a, to, to study at and just to, I mean, it, 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 the campus itself is incredible. So that's uh, for anyone that's younger and interested in pursuing uh, biology, definitely check out Eckerd. I think it's a great place. So, mm-hmm. but uh, all right. I mean, I guess if anyone else has anything, but we can um, sign off for now, but yeah. Thank you guys for having me. And I'm sure I'll see you guys around pretty soon or in the next few months. Oh yeah, we'll be down there next month, right? When uh, when do you yeah. head off, Dave? He said uh, January third, but I'll be gone for winter break too. Or for oh yeah, weeks. that's right. Yeah, but I know we talked about you know going doing stuff next spring. So hopefully, yeah. fertile stuff to come for sure. For sure. All right, sweet. Well, this concludes the final episode of season one. We will have season two uh ready at some point <laughs> but uh thanks for listening to this first season of colonia cast uh leave a review drop a like subscribe do whatever you do on spotify apple Podcasts. but uh all right thanks thanks for joining us